Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. I love listening to it, talking about it, reading up on it, and making weekly top 10 charts with songs I like at the moment. I can only come to one conclusion. Music is my radar. Once again, everybody, welcome back to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. Can you believe it? I've made it 10 years in discussing the songs that made number one on my charts. Started in 1999, and here we are in quarter one of 2008. As I've said several times before, these charts make for an excellent time capsule of where I was and what I was doing that particular week. And in the case of 2008, they were a little more impactful than usual. For my personal life, 2008 truly represented the best of times and the worst of times. As always, I'll keep it about the music first and foremost, but many of these songs have very strong personal attachments to me tied up in these life events, so as we go along, I'll probably provide an update on my life during the time. So, fair warning, as they say in the movie trailers, this time it's personal. And on a musical note, whereas the last few episodes were all about scouring the British charts, and in quarter four in particular, a lot of bands probably belong to the Ministry of Silly Names. Oh wait, that's a Monty Python sketch, and that's Silly Walks. This quarter around, there are six songs I'll be talking about, and half of them were a result of turning my musical attention to a 15-volume compilation from the always wonderful Rhino Records entitled Just Can't Get Enough, New Wave Hits of the 80s. As a matter of fact, the first two number ones come from that compilation, so let's get to it. The first number one of the year was on the week ending January 5th, 2008. It spent two weeks at the top. Here's Robert Palmer with Looking for Clues. from his hit single, Addicted to Love, and the iconic music video where it had those models, fake playing instruments, with a solemn look on their faces. 
and Simply Irresistible, his follow-up two years later, that milked a very similar concept in the music video. If you only know those two songs, you might think that Robert Palmer was a one-trick pony, but turns out he was far from that. After bouncing around some bands in the late 60s and early 70s, he went solo in the middle of the decade and released several albums that allegedly are quite different from one another. He did New Orleans Funk, Blue-Eyed Soul, Reggae, Caribbean Style in his first hit single, Every Kind of People, a song that surely is much better than all of Jimmy Buffett's catalog combined, and Hard Rock in his hit single a year after that, 1979's Bad Case of Love and You, parentheses, Doctor, Doctor, you know, give me the news, I got a bad case of love in you. And then in 1980, he released the fully synth-pop album Clues, and that's where Looking for Clues comes from. That's the only Robert Palmer album I've listened to all the way through, and even then that only happened a few weeks ago. Now, I had mistakenly thought that someone else did the production on this album, like maybe someone from Talking Heads or one of those other new wave groups, but nope, it was self-produced, although Talking Head Chris Franz does show up and drum on Looking for Clues. The song has always come off to me as sort of a Talking Heads light type track. The first line, he's frightened by the sound of a telephone, then he's frightened by relationships, but Palmer doesn't sound like he's on the edge of a nervous breakdown as David Byrne often did. If it were a track on, say, Fear of Music, it would have been simply called Telephone or Relationships, implying fear of telephone. But nah, Robert Palmer is always Mr. Suave, as opposed to David Byrne's lovable nerd persona. But even if it didn't sound like Talking Heads or had an actual Talking Head in the recording, Looking for Clues is a hoot of a song. It captures that early synth-pop vibe very well in the early 80s before it became overproduced and whatnot. And every line in the verse ends with, Ooh yeah, or oh my. It'd give you something to latch on to. And get this, a xylophone solo. It wasn't a smash hit single. It sneaked in the top 40 in the UK. But it did have a funny music video that, that ended up being played on the first day of MTV's broadcast, August 1st, 1981. The rest of the album's pretty fun, too. Gary Newman shows up here and there. It had another minor hit single in Johnny and Mary. And he even throws in a synth-pop remake of The Beatles' Not a Second Time. And he even wrote a second verse that wasn't in the original. Not sure why he did that, but he did. Of course, he would later go on to find even bigger success as the lead singer of The Power Station, where they did Some Like It Hot and a terrible cover of Bang A Gong, Get It On, and of course, Addicted to Love, which inspired a young Weird Al Yankovic to record his parody, Addicted to Spuds, which name-checks my lovely state, Idaho, in it. I'm not really a fan of those or anything he did afterwards, but he passed away in 2003 at the age of 54 after a heart attack. That's way too young to pass away, so that's kind of a bummer. But hey, maybe he finally found those clues. The next number one that I just couldn't get enough of, ha, see what I did there, spent a sole week at number one. Here are the flirts with jukebox, parentheses, don't put another dime.
here's an instance of a group that I knew next to nothing about for many years until doing the research for this episode. And what I came to find out was kind of disappointing. As I alluded to, this was another find on the Just Can't Get Enough compilation. When I first heard the song, I thought that the flirts were sort of an update of the Shangri-Las, that girl group from the 60s, whom distinguished themselves from other girl groups by being a lot more tough and aggro. Their most famous song, of course, being Leader of the Pack. They just had that New York toughness about them, and that's what I heard in Jukebox. The subject matter of Jukebox is also decidedly retro. A girl sees her boyfriend in the pizza place, and that new girl turns out to be her best friend, and she requests not to get on the Jukebox and play that song that reminds her of them, whatever song that may be. While the lyrics are heartbroken, you get a sense that, just like the Shangri-Las, if you dumped any of them, they'd just as soon kick your ass rather than cry about it. I had thought that the Flirts were a self-contained group. Maybe they didn't play their own instruments, but still an updating of the 60s girl group model. But turns out that's not quite the case. According to the old Wikipedia, they were a project concept group put together by producer-slash-songwriter-slash-musician Bobby Orlando, a.k.a. Bobby O. He was known as a pioneer of the high NRG sound of the 80s. The Flirts were probably his most well-known act. Even though Jukebox did not chart in 1982, they had a couple other songs that charted in Europe. From what little I've heard, they're straight-up high NRG, mostly for the clubs at the time. He did not have any mainstream success as a producer, the closest he got was producing demos for the Pet Shop Boys before they ditched him for another producer before their first album, Please. The most well-known disciples of his sound was Stock Eggman Waterman, a production trio who had a crap ton of hit records in the UK and the US. They're the ones who produced the cover of Venus by Bananarama, You Spin Me Around Like a Record by Dead or Alive, and that Rick Roll himself, Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. Aside from You Spin Me Around, I have no use for high NRG as a genre. And as it turns out, every Flirts album has a completely different lineup of singer-slash-models. Not as sinister as, say, Menudo, but still disappointing. But despite all that, Jukebox is still a fun song. I gotta wonder if it popped up on a soundtrack in one of those 80s movies. Who knows? Next up, we got a monster of a song that spent four weeks at the top of the charts. And it's gonna get a little personal. Here's live with Overcome. Here 
here's where things turn a little personal for me. But first, let's welcome Live back into the discussion. Now, we last saw them in 2002, when their fourth single from 1994's Throwing Copper, All Over You, topped my charts. Well, after that mega-success of Throwing Copper, none of the band's subsequent releases matched that success. I did not pay attention to Secret Samadhi in 1997, and I do recall the first single off 1999's The Distance to Hear, entitled The Dolphin's Cry, but I didn't care for that song. In 2001, they released their fifth album, simply titled V, and it was even less successful than the other three. But it got an unexpected and rather unwelcome boost. See, the album was released on September 18th, 2001, meaning it just barely missed the unhappy distinction of being an album released on 9-11. Other albums weren't so lucky, like Jay-Z's The Blueprint, They Might Be Giant's Mink Car, and uh, Nickelback's Silver Side Up. However, several radio stations picked up on Overcome in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, as it sounded somber and sparse, matching the national mood at the time. I didn't know this at the time. I didn't hear Overcome until, you guessed it, counting inventory. I did the old school listen for lyrics and type them in Google search game, and to my surprise, I found out it was live. I had taken it as a semi-religious song. He's overcome, holy water in his lungs, maybe he's being baptized in the river. But I can neither confirm nor deny that Live or Ed Kowalczyk were or are Christian, so who knows. Where it gets personal for me is, I had spent the previous Christmas break with my girlfriend at the time, and she's had a history of medical struggles. I believe she still does. And one night she had a medical attack. I don't remember what it was, but called her parents into the room, and we called 911, went to ER. She was fine. She didn't have to stay overnight. She was discharged after just an hour or so. But it was quite a humbling experience. Like, what if I hadn't been there when she had that attack? What would have happened? When I got back to town in January of 08, I decided that after I graduated in spring of that year, I was going to move to Indiana and see how that worked out. I did not hear Overcome until after I had returned, but it was a song that reminded me of what happened that night and my significant life-changing decision, so even though I didn't have any religious connection to the song, I just found it really beautiful, and in the midst of all this just-can't-get-enough songs and early 80s bands with silly names, this song had nothing to do with those and stood on top for four weeks. 2008 was going to be a roller coaster year for me for sure, and this is the first number one song that reflects that. But none of the other songs on this episode had the same kind of personal impact. Next week is going to be a doozy as far as that goes. But for now, as I say quite often, moving on. After spending a month at number one, Overcome succumbed to a different song. For the week ending February 23rd, spending two weeks at the top of the charts, Here are the motors with love and loneliness.
third time in this episode. We got a track from that Just Can't Get Enough compilation. While a lot of the British groups that I highlighted in last week's episode had an interesting story and a silly band name, the Motors had neither. They were just a no-frills power-pop group that had several hits in their native UK in the late 70s. Both of those hits, Airport and Forget About You, would show up on my charts later on in 2008, but Love and Loneliness is a little different from those. It was from their third album in 1980, Tenement Steps. They had lost half of their band members by then, and American producer Jimmy Iovine was brought in to produce the record. His previous production works included Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' breakthrough album, Damn the Torpedoes, as well as the Bruce Springsteen albums, Born to Run, Darkness on the Edge of Town, and The River. That might explain why Love and Loneliness sounds like a Bruce Springsteen song. I did not play the whole intro of this song. Instead, I faded in at the 45-second mark, but it is a lengthy, keyboard-driven intro, and it stays throughout the rest of the song. It's like Phil Spector's Wall of Sound, except it's Wall of Synths. Plus, the lead singer really strains his voice, whether he's trying to sound like Springsteen or not. It's almost like it's him versus the production, and the production easily wins out. But in my opinion, that contrast works in the song's favor. It's yet another song about a breakup in the aftermath, one of many, but it sounds like one of the most intense things ever when you're listening to it. It did become their only song to chart in America, albeit at 78. Meanwhile, in the UK, it missed the top 50 altogether and spelled the end of the group. They only recorded three studio albums to their name and only lasted three years as a group. And even though I did more research about this group before the episode, I still doubt that I'm going to go out and listen to one of their albums. They just don't have enough personality as a group. But at least they left us with one gem of a song, even if it's on the overproduced side of things. Cheers to you, Los Motors. That made no sense at all. <laughs> Heading into March, we will close out this episode with two songs that spent two weeks apiece at number one. They Might Be Giants made a triumphant return to the summit. It's a twofer this time. Memo to Human Resources, and Damn Good Times, and I gotta provide samples of both. I'll be in the back, and I don't need the help. I'm good here in the back, I'm good all by myself. I'm busy taking stock of all the things that I forgot, and making mental notes of just exactly where I lost the
Giants concert in September 2007, I thought I was going to know each song that they played. After all, I had access to all of their albums, right? But I was wrong. They played two songs that I hadn't heard before, Memo to Human Resources and Damn Good Times. As it turns out, I completely overlooked their 2004 release, The Spine, from which both songs came. Now, in the canon of They Might Be Giants studio albums, the Spine is not in the top tier, in my opinion. 2001's Mink Car was an interesting stew of different producers, and if it didn't feel cohesive, at least it was interesting to see the contrasts. And 2007's The Else had the presence of the Dust Brothers and more political subjects. The Spine came in between, and parts of the album feel like they might be giants by numbers. But when I listen to the album, both the songs that I heard live had a leg up on the other ones, thus their number one peak was almost predetermined. Both songs appear to be Flansburg songs. At least, both of them feature him on lead vocals. Memo to Human Resources seems to be another one of those songs with a happy-sounding melody but dark lyrics that TMBG specializes in. The melody is gentle, but the lyrics either seem to be a work-sucks rant or a guy who's so depressed that he's considering taking his life. We don't know for sure. That's Linnell on the backing vocals singing 5, 4, 3, 2, 2, 2. The Johns said that the original song title was I'm Down, but in a joking manner, they shook their fists at the Beatles for coming up with that song title first. Quote, Damn you, Fab Four. All your good ideas. All your history. End quote. I'm not going to attempt any analysis on damn good times. To me, it's a song that was written to be played live, especially as a set closer to really bring the house down. It's just about a girl who's a natural dancer or likes to dance, maybe at a They Might Be Giants show. As a standard for They Might Be Giants songs, there's quite a bit of pop culture references in here. She's got ants in her pants as she's gonna dance, is a paraphrasing of one of those James Brown songs that has a crazy title, and that line, she acts like David Lee Roth when he turned 21. Well, according to the They Might Be Giants Wikipedia, he did have a track on one of his solo albums called Damn Good, where he talks about damn good times, but it's more of a mid-tempo, almost reflective, acoustic ballad. He doesn't mention wanting a bottle of anything and a glazed donut to go. So, sorry, not interested. Back to TMBG, Damn Good Times only has two verses, and it utilizes that speed up towards the end trick which furthers my suspicions that it was written to be a show-stopping live number, even though it's not the final song on Spine, which doesn't make any sense to me. Well, at this point, I dropped out of They Might Be Giants for a few years, since after The Else, they didn't release a proper studio album for four years until 2011's Join Us. They released two kids' albums, Here Come the One Two Threes and Here Comes Science, in the meantime but I didn't pay much attention to those at the time. So, let's bid They Might Be Giants a farewell for now. See you guys in the 2011 episodes. Rounding out the episode, on the week ending March 22nd, spending two weeks at the top of its own, it's The Beautiful South with Song for Whoever. I love you. 
love you from the bottom of my pencil case. I love you in the songs I write and sing. Love you because you put me in my rightful place. And I love the PRS checks that you bring. Cheap. Never cheap. I'll sing your songs till you're asleep. When you've gone upstairs, I'll creep and write it all down, 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 down. Oh, Shelley, oh, Deborah, oh, oh, Jane. I wrote so many songs about you. Forget your name. I forget your name. Jennifer, Allison, Philip, so Deborah, Annabelle, too. I forget your name. Jennifer, Allison, Philip, so Deborah, Annabelle, too. I forget your name. This is the first appearance of the beautiful South on Music Is My Radar, but it's not the first one of the lead singer Paul Heaton. His former band was the House Martins that you heard in the 2001 episodes with Happy Hour. After only two albums, the band called it a day, and Heaton, along with a couple of bandmates, formed the Beautiful South in 1988. This song was their first single from their first album, 1989's Welcome to the Beautiful South. The lead singer on this song is actually Dave Hemingway, who was the Ed Robertson to Paul Heaton's Stephen Page to expand upon my Bare Naked Ladies analogy from my House Martins review, as I think Heaton and Stephen Page sound very similar to one another. I saw one review refer to this song as gently subversive, and honestly, that was the band in a nutshell. Their sound was usually soft pop or adult contemporary, but with cynical lyrics and or dark subject matter. That sound also got them quite a bit of criticism, since if you didn't pay enough attention to the lyrics, I could see how you could be lulled to sleep by their songs. It's British subtlety, which almost means too subtle for its own good sometimes. In the case of Song for Whoever, it's pretty straightforward. One of those songs about writing a song. In this case, it's disguised as a love letter to a woman, but he doesn't remember who he is because he has dated so many women just to write songs about her. And those songs are usually big hits in lines like the number one I hope to reap and I love your PRS checks that you bring, PRS meaning Performance Rights Society, basically a royalty check. Hey, isn't that the way Taylor Swift writes songs? She dates people just to dump or be dumped by them and writes scathing breakup songs? Question mark, question mark. Oh wait, never mind. Taylor Swift is indie cool now, thanks to folklore and evermore. Back to song for whoever. To drive the point home, the chorus consists of both members listing out various lady names, like Jennifer, Allison, or Philippa Sue. Wait a minute, the same Philippa Sue who played Eliza in the original Hamilton cast? No, of course not. But that brings up another crazy musical connection. Was this the original Mambo Number no. 5? A little bit of Allison on my mind, a little bit of Philippa Sue. No, probably not. 
Lou Bega never had that kind of pretense for writing that song. He just wanted to list off all the girls he's loved before. Anywho, Heaton and the guys were convinced that this song had hit potential, and they were proven right. It reached number two in the UK in July 1989, and I'm willing to bet a good amount of people took it as a straight-up love song without listening to the lyrics. But hey, a hit is a hit is a hit. This group will return to the top of the charts in three years' time, so until then, I believe that's a wrap. And now, as we always do, let's take a brief look at some songs that didn't hit number one, but are deserving of honorable mention. Two songs that were kept out of the top by Robert Palmer included a song by Austrian rock group Opus called Live is Life, one of those hilarious Euro songs where English is not their first language, and you can tell, followed by a legit new wave song also from Just Can't Get Enough, Echo Beach by Martha and the Muffins. Clocking in at number 6 in February, a song that was deep within the bowels of my 1998 mind, Got You Where I Want You by The Flies, and spending two weeks at number 5 in March, the touching punk tribute, People Who Died by the Jim Carroll Band, but the song I'll go out on is one of three songs that played runner-up to Lives Overcome, a song by Japanese new wave group The Plastics called Top Secret Man. This was brought to my attention by SETV, that Canadian sketch show from the early 80s that spawned the fluke number one by Bob and Doug McKenzie and employed the talents of future Schitt's Creek stars Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. On one of their episodes, there was a sketch, The Jerry Todd Show, with Rick Moranis playing this slick sort of TV radio guy, and he aired the video for Talking Heads Once in a Lifetime, and the host of a similar such show in Japan, Tim Ishimuni, followed that up by airing the video for Top Secret Man. I wouldn't recommend that sketch. The Tim Ishimuni character was played by Dave Thomas. I'm pretty sure he wore buck teeth and could definitely qualify as problematic slash borderline racist. But the good news was the Plastics were a highly revered band by the new wave acts of the day, Devo, B-52s, Talking Heads. They were responsible for getting their 1980 album Welcome Plastics released in the States. I'm thinking I should add that to the to-do music pile. But anywho, as always, thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar, and the storytelling will continue in earnest the next three episodes, so thanks in advance for taking this journey with me. See you guys next week.
Thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar. This is a podcast centered around music commentary and review. As such, all of the rights of the music samples that I have provided throughout the episode remain exclusive property of their respective copyright holders.